If you have a Bible, would you take it, please, and turn to Isaiah chapter 44. We will be in Isaiah 44 through 45 today. Um, it's been a while since I've preached, so thanks to, to Trevor, to Jake, uh, to Mark, and to Joel for preaching so uh, helpfully over the past weeks. Um, I'm excited to be back in the scriptures with you. And I have to say, I just saw Fod out here. It's so good to see you, Fod. It's been a while since we've seen you, so I'm encouraged to have you here, brother. Um, Isaiah chapter 44, and we'll be in verses 24 through Isaiah 45, the end of the chapter, verse 25. Uh, I don't know about you, but I have learned to trust Google Maps. Uh, earlier this month on our way home from vacation in North Carolina, I turned on the turn-by-turn -turn navigation, and I had it on the entire way home uh, as it talked me through everything that I was supposed to do, and I did everything that it asked me to do. Um, when it took me off the interstate in Winston-Salem and through a few random side streets before putting me back on the highway for a moment, I said, why are you taking me this way, Google? Um, but only for a moment, because in hindsight, I could see that it took me down those side streets and it saved me from being in a traffic jam that would have added 25 minutes to an already too long trip home. Uh, that said, there have been times when I have not trusted Google. Um, when it told me, the map function told me to do something out of the ordinary and I said, whatever Google Maps, I know where I'm going, only to find myself in bumper to bumper traffic that I could have avoided if I would have listened to uh, the person on the Maps app. Uh, following on the heels of his great promises of redemption and restoration in chapters 43 and 44 of Isaiah, we might ask the question, how will God accomplish all of these grand purposes? How is he going to do what he says he will? How will he get us to this destination of deliverance that he is describing and that he is promising to get us to. And here in Isaiah 44 and 45, we're given the answer to that, to that how question, but it's a surprising answer. It's even an unsettling answer. It seems like a strange route down a dark side street we would normally avoid, or a route that heads in the opposite direction of where we want to go. But these chapters help us to see that we may not be as smart or as wise as we sometimes think, think we are. That our God is, is bigger and wiser than we often realize and therefore worthy of our trust in all circumstances, even the difficult ones. And so therefore God, God's word says to us today, open your eyes to trust God's unexpected ways and your heart to share his unrelenting love. Open your eyes to trust God's unexpected ways and open your heart to share his unrelenting love that is worked out in those ways. Knowing what God is doing in the world and even trusting that he has the power and the desire to work for our good and his glory in all circumstances is not the same as trusting or understanding how God will work his will out. In fact, I may not be, be thrilled with his ways. Sometimes we're downright angered and incensed by what he is doing, by, by how he is accomplishing his purposes in the world. That could be regard, with regard to our own lives and families. 
We know that he is working out his will, but we just don't like how he is doing it. It could be with regard to how he is dealing with issues in the church or in the world or just simply how is he, how he is establishing his kingdom in this very broken world. As we accept God's will amidst uncertainty about his ways, Isaiah says to us, open your eyes. Open your eyes to trust God's unexpected ways and your heart to share his unrelenting love. As we walk through these verses, remember that Isaiah is preaching God to us. He is telling us who God is and how he works so that we might trust and follow him. And so taking a phrase from chapter 45, verse 7, we find first that God says to Israel and to us in Isaiah 44, 24 through 45, 7, I am the Lord who does all these things, maybe with an emphasis on all. <laughs> I am the Lord who does all these things things. Let's read Isaiah 44, 24 through 45, 7. And as we do, remember that these words are speaking of what God will do in returning his people to the land of Israel after exile and restoring the city of Jerusalem and the temple. But they also speak in general about how God works in the lives of his people. Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 24. God's word says, thus says the Lord, your redeemer who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Chapter 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord. And there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that my people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Verses 24 through 28 of chapter 44 are actually one long sentence with a very unexpected climax in verse 28. Throughout that sentence, God is revealed as 
the sovereign ruler of all things, from general to specific, small to great, intricate to grand. He forms a child in the womb of her mother, and he stretches out all the stars of the universe. He fills the seas with water, and he also can dry them up with a single word. He is the redeemer of his people, the one who created them, who initiated relationship with them, who called them his own, who sent them into exile, and the only one who can restore them from exile. Another way to think about this long sentence is to see that God is revealed as the one who is at work in the past, the present, and the future. He is the one in the past who formed the world and who formed his people. Verse 24. He's the one who is controlling the present, no matter how much we humans think we are shaping and directing this world or our lives. In this moment and in all the present moments of history, the Lord frustrates the liars and he makes fools of those who claim to predict the future by prideful or devilish means because he alone is the one who both announces and accomplishes all of his plans. He exposes those who claim to be wise as fools and he confirms his word over and over again. Then, at the end of verse 26, we look to the future, and we see that the Lord is predicting something very specific with regard to those who would be in exile in Babylon. He says that Jerusalem, nearly emptied of God's people in the exile, would be inhabited, and its walls would be rebuilt. He says of the destroyed temple that it would be restored. And of these future actions, the Lord reveals how he will do it. So just how will he accomplish the restoration of his people to the land of promise? How is God going to enable the walls of Jerusalem to rebuild, be rebuilt? How is he going to restore the temple? He's going to do it through the idol-worshiping king of Persia who would come and conquer Babylon and then send the Israelites back to Jerusalem. God will accomplish his purposes through Cyrus. Now, before we consider how shocking it is that God would use Cyrus to accomplish his divine purposes, we should consider how shocking it is that Cyrus is mentioned here by name over 100 years before he was ever on the scene of history. It's shocking enough that a number of scholars contend that there's no way that Isaiah wrote this. <laughs> Instead, they say that someone must have edited Isaiah's words after the facts of Cyrus's actions or that this prophecy as a whole must have been written after the fact of Cyrus's actions. The irony of such a conclusion is this, to assert that God could not name the ruler that he would use to deliver his people before he was born is to deny the very truths about God that this passage is asserting. Is our Lord sovereign over all things, great and small? Does he declare the end from the beginning, asserting and accomplishing all of his purposes perfectly? Does his eternal wisdom make the wise men and women of this world look like fools? If you said yes <laughs> to all of those answers, uh, all of those questions in your head, as these verses would compel us to say, then the truly foolish thing would be to deny our Lord's ability to know of Cyrus and to know of his actions before they ever happened. Is that kind of thing something that's too hard for the Lord that's described in verses 24 through 28? Of course not. Case closed. <laughs> so if we can jump that hurdle, if we can get over this hurdle of God's predictive ability, then we're faced with another challenge, 
which is actually, I think, a harder one. It's namely, why is God using an idol-worshiping tyrant to accomplish his purposes? And not just using him, but he refers to him in, verse, uh, in 4428 as my shepherd, and in 45.1 as the Lord's anointed. The phrase the Lord's anointed is used only of Saul and David and the kings of Judah. It's used of the Messiah. It's, it's the word in Psalm 2.2 that refers to the coming Messiah, the anointed one. And shockingly, it's used of Cyrus in chapter 45, verse 1. It may be helpful in thinking about that to consider that to be called the Lord's anointed does not assume moral purity. Rather, it's more focused on the determination of the Lord to use this specific individual for his purposes. That, that second phrase of chapter 45, verse 1 is, is helpful. Whose right hand I have grasped. God has taken a hold of this individual to use him for his purposes. He is God's instrument wielded for God's good pleasure. In a similar vein, we could think about Saul, who was the Lord's anointed and the first king of Israel. Was Saul the chosen instrument of God in those days? Most certainly. Samuel's very clear about that. Yet was Saul often a fool who sought his own glory and his own will above the Lord's? Yes, he was. But still, the Lord used him to accomplish his, accomplish his purposes. So what we start to see is that the focus is on the Lord. It's not on Cyrus. And so it's no surprise that God is actually the subject of every verb in these first seven verses of chapter 45. Having revealed Cyrus in 44:28, Isaiah 45, one through seven provides further details about how God will work through Cyrus, which are revealed through a message that's spoken to Cyrus in these verses. Of course, it's God's people who are the ones for whom these words are written. And they remind us that God is in complete control no matter how much it appears that Cyrus or that any other earthly power is in control. God goes before Cyrus, and he subdues nations. He humbles kings. He opens city gates. He levels fortresses. He breaks doors of bronze, and he cuts bars of iron. And in verse 5, though Cyrus doesn't even know his name, we're told that the Lord equips Cyrus for his purposes. Verse 7 summarizes this providence of God in a way that makes us a bit uncomfortable. Look at verse 7. This is the Lord speaking. He says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Does our understanding of providence go as far as Isaiah's does? Are we comfortable with affirming that God not only forms light and makes well-being, but that he also creates darkness and calamity, that he can use even wicked kings to accomplish his will, that the people I disagree with in power may actually be instruments used by God. If our understanding of providence is weak, then we will say that there are moments when God is out of control, when he has lost his grip on history. But faith says that even when we struggle to understand it, our God is the Lord who does all these things. Brothers and sisters, I would say that just as God is the subject of every verb in these verses, our Father is the subject of all the verbs of history. However people are acting, or what they may be doing, our God is the sovereign Lord of the past and the present 
and the future. As we sang last week, every joy or trial falleth from above. Or in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, maybe you saw that in your bulletin, question and answer 27. Here's the question. What do you understand by the providence of God? The almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Just a note, I love that word fatherly in there. Isn't that helpful? His fatherly hand. And what keeps this idea of God's providence from from being some form of fatalism is that we know not only that God is in control of all things and the subject of all the verbs of history, but that God has a purpose behind all of his ways. He reveals them even here. Why is God working through Cyrus in this way? Verse three says, it was so that Cyrus and kings like him might know that it is the Lord who calls him by name and does with him as he pleases. Verse four says, it was for the sake of God's chosen people for their restoration and redemption. Cyrus was the guy that could redeem them. And verse six, which may sum up all of these other purposes, it says that it was so that all people from east to west might know that the Lord alone is God and there is no other ruler or God like him. Would you be surprised if I said that all of this is happening for the good of God's people and for the glory of God's name? You probably wouldn't because we say that all the time around here. But we say it often because it's easy to forget in the trenches of life that everything that God does and all of the unique and sometimes frustrating and hidden ways that he is working, that he chooses to work, that even in those confusing and difficult things, that these are all for our good and for God's glory. And so we return back to the Heidelberg Catechism and the question and answer that follow that affirmation about God's providence that show us that theology is not just in our brain. Providence isn't just something that we hold in our head, but that it affects how we live and it affects our heart. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? How does it help us? Well, we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. So the application of these verses does not seem to be try and figure out who the Cyruses in the world are. I think that's sometimes where we go. Don't try to figure out who the Cyruses in this world are, but rather the, the application is to take confidence that the Lord is working in ways and through people that we cannot fully comprehend all for our good and all for his glory. In fact, I think it would be a bit prideful and presumptuous to assume that we will respond with approval to the way that God is working out his purposes in the world or that we will be able to easily identify the Cyruses wielded by God, let alone approve of them. The opposite seems to be how we often respond to God's ways, which is what we see in verses 8 through 13. In these verses, God is answering this question from his people. Lord, why are you doing all these things? If you are doing all these things, why? 
why are you acting like this? Why are you working in these ways? Look with me at Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 8, just through verse 13. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or, your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I've stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. One of the comforting beauties of God's word is that it invites us to struggle with God's ways in our lives and in the world to ask why he is accomplishing his purposes in the ways that he chooses to. The Psalms especially are an open invitation to wrestle with the confusing ways that God is often at work. And so as we consider the darkness and the calamity that God providentially orchestrates, we can ask all kinds of why questions. However, God is also kind in the fact that he's not going to let us continually shake our fists at his mysterious ways. And so in passages like Romans 9, in passages like the end of Job, and in passages like this one here, he exposes what David Jackman calls the foolishness and ignorance of human disputes with God. The foolishness and ignorance of human disputes with God. Is there room in our faith to struggle with God's ways? Yes. But in the words of verse 8, woe to us, if we strive with God. So after this poetic description of God's sovereignty and how he works in ways, in right, always in righteousness, in verse eight, we're invited to envision a clay pot. So think about a clay pot. And this clay pot turns to the potter who is making it and says, what are you doing? <laughs> why are you making me like this? And why don't I have any handles? Every good pot has handles. That illustration, as I was thinking about it, it reminds me of a, a painting that hung in a friend of mine's house, which he had gotten as a hand-me-down from his grandmother. And as I remember it, it was a reprint, a nice reprint, of a, a Monet painting that depicted a boat on the water. However, my friend's grandmother had thought that Monet's choice of color for the boat was poor, or as I remember it, it didn't match her decor. So she repainted the boat. <laughs> she did a really nice job. But it was still amusing me, to me to think about repainting a Monet, <laughs> of correcting the work of this revered artist. The other illustration in verse 10 is in verse 10, and it's of an infant rebuking his parents. And this is the New Living Translation. How terrible it would be if a newborn baby said to its father, why was I born? <laughs> or if it said to its mother, why did you make me this way? I don't know about you, I find both of those illustrations a bit comical. Uh, we might even say they're kind of absurd given that they involve talking pots and newborns. 
And in that, I think they actually help set us straight. They reveal in some ways the absurdity of questioning God, who is revealed in verses 11 through 13 as our creator, as the, the creator of the whole world and the standard of justice and righteousness who always works in righteousness, who is shown as the one who is the Lord with none beside him. And so once we're done laughing at ourselves, we should examine the pride in our hearts that would strive with God. Again, some words from David Jackman are helpful. He writes this, the problem at root is that we try to reshape God into our human image. It was so in Isaiah's day, and it is equally so in our own. We fail to see God's hand at work in the affairs of our world. We think we know how things ought to be panning out, forgetting that he is sovereign. We even give him advice in our public intercessions about what he should be doing in the world. In J.B. Phillips' memorable rebuke, your God is too small. We cannot believe that he could use people we do not approve of or who would not do things our way. We fail to identify with God's great love for all his world and with his grace, which is constantly working through the gospel to bring, to bring blessing to new people. So think about your frustrations, past or present, with how God works or is working out his will. Are we struggling because we presume that we are wiser than God? Are we trying to reshape him in our image, assuming that our ways are the best and therefore they're the things that God should do? Is our God too small? We would do well to remember that we, to remember who we are, that we are the clay and God is the potter. We are the infant and God is the father. I saw that Tim Keller recently said, your future self will always see your present self as unwise and immature. That means by your own standards, you are currently a fool right now. <laughs> would this apply to the way we understand God's ways in the world? In the present, we think we are so smart. We think we have all the answers and we know what would be best in every circumstance. But a few years or decades later, we look back at ourselves and we see how foolish we were and how wise God was. I don't know, maybe by God's grace, when we struggle in the present, we can look ahead to that day in the future. We can look ahead and know that maybe we'll look back and say, it'll all make sense later on. Or maybe we can even just look ahead to the final kingdom when all of God's ways will make perfect sense. In response to our why questions, Isaiah again preaches God to us and he says to us in verses 14 through 25, open your eyes and your hearts. Open your eyes to see God's perfect ways, but also open your hearts so that you would share his love for all people because everything that he is doing is out of love for his people and out of a desire to draw people to salvation. Look at these final verses of Isaiah 45, 14 through 25. I know we've read a lot of scripture, but uh, I guess that's not a bad thing, right? But engage here with me in Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, 
O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. To him, shall come, to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. In verses 14 and 18, we're told this is what the Lord said and, and says. And these two messages counter the grumbling of the Israelites in response to God using Cyrus. And they offer a, a rebuke of God's people's attitude towards those outside of the faith. They reveal that God is extending his grace beyond Israel, and he's joyfully revealing himself through general and special revelation, and thereby inviting, we are invited to open our eyes and our hearts to God's ways and desires. So verses 14 through 17 reveal God's unexpected grace, namely that nations beyond Israel are going to come and bow down to the Lord. Barry Webb says of this verse, All, although the imagery is commercial and military, what is ultimately in view is a conquest that is intensely spiritual in nature, the final triumph of the truth about God. So we start to see that everything God is doing will lead to the nations, great and small, seeing that the Lord alone is God and that salvation is found in him. His confusing ways, the ones that frustrate us, are going to result in people bowing before him as Savior and Lord. Isaiah responds with awe in verses 15 through 17. He sees that God's people were, were going to be led into captivity. They would appear to be defeated before the gods of the nations, but God would turn these things into everlasting salvation. It may seem at times as if God is hiding himself, but when we assume he is absent, he is simply working in ways that we cannot see or we can't comprehend. And so again, we find that God is not so much hiding himself as we're not seeing him. Verses 18 through, through 25 make this clear because God is revealing himself so clearly in the way that God, God describes his, the revelation of himself. We're reminded that he made the heavens, he formed the earth, and they declare his glory. And also that he's not spoken in secret. He's not hiding himself, but he's clearly revealed himself in his word. General and special revelation, they clearly tell us who God is and how he works. But verse 20, again, we naturally 
create idols instead of bowing before the Lord. We strive with him, and we look to anything and everything before we look to trust in him. But he says to the whole world in verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Why? For I am God, and there is no other. Verses 22 through 25 drive home this reality, that God alone saves, God alone brings righteousness, God alone gives strength, and in God alone can we be justified. Only God saves. Only God can bring righteousness. Only God can give us strength. Only God can justify us. There is nowhere else to turn. And we know that he's done all this through the sending of his son, Jesus. Jesus, the great shepherd. Jesus, the true anointed one who came to live and to die and to rise again. What a strange and unique way for God to work. What a way that we would not understand, a way that's hidden from us until we're given eyes of faith to see the depth of our sin and the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice and his resurrection. When Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 19th century, was 15 years old, he was caught in a snowstorm that forced him to take shelter in a primitive Methodist chapel where a substitute lay preacher had just stepped into the pulpit to preach from Isaiah 45, 22. This is what Spurgeon wrote in his autobiography. He had not much to say, thank God, <laughs> for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text. And there was, nothing, there was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text. Then stopping, imagine this, then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery and he said, that young man there looks very miserable. <laughs> and he shouted, as I think only a primitive Methodist can, look, look, young man, Look now. Spurgeon says, then I had this vision. Not a vision to my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a savior Christ was. Now, I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe than I also understood what it was to believe. And I did believe in one moment. And as the snow fell on my road home from the little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told of the pardon I had found. For I was white as the driven snow through the grace of God. God was working in small and great and unseen ways to save Spurgeon. And so too he is working in hidden and unseen and unimaginable ways to accomplish his, accomplish his purposes in our lives and in the world. God is the subject of every verb of history and every verb of your life and mine. And just as a, a snowstorm and a substitute preacher led to the salvation of a soul, so too God's ways are always working 
for the salvation of the lost. That's his ultimate purpose. And he's working all things for that purpose. So when we are frustrated by him, he reminds us over and over again that he alone is the Lord and there is no other. And that even the things that we don't understand, that frustrate us, that make us mad, that confuse us, even these things are leading to our good. And not just our good, but they're leading to the salvation of souls. How often we're frustrated just for personal reasons and we fail to see God's grander purposes for the salvation of the world and ultimately for his glory. God helps us to see that what may be difficult for us is designed for the salvation of others and so we can be content and we can even count it joy when we face trials because we know we're being formed in the likeness of Christ and that people are being drawn to Christ. In our response to all of this, we can not only hold to the truth of our big idea, but we can make it our prayer each day, and especially when we're confused and frustrated. We can humbly say, Father, open my eyes. Open my eyes to trust your unexpected ways, and open my heart to share your unrelenting love for all people. Join me in a moment of silence as we reflect on God's word, and then I will pray. Father, you are God and there is no other. And Jesus, you are the Savior and there is no other. Lord, thank you that you are working all things for your glory and for our good. Forgive us for sometimes not seeing you, for being so consumed with our own ideas about what is right, for being so consumed with our own comfort that we fail to see the amazing things that you're doing in very unexpected ways. And so, Lord, help us. We pray that you would open our eyes to trust you, to trust all of your unexpected ways, even when they're hard for us. And, Lord, also open our hearts to share your unrelenting love for all people such that everything you are doing is meant to draw people to salvation. Lord, we, our minds are too small, <laughs> but we pray that you would press us deeper into a knowledge of who you are and that knowing who you are would change how we live. I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.